Hey, everyone. Excited to be back for this week's edition of Commercial Real Estate 101. Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're actually repurposing a presentation that I gave uh, to the Small Business Development Center here in Kentucky. Uh, and the subject itself is how to purchase commercial property. So I actually go through the process of how owner users can start their search and ultimately finish uh, by getting to the closing table. And I explain within the presentation uh, of a variety of different uh, or share a variety of different insights pertaining to this uh, process. And this is all related to uh, my latest book that's going to be coming out here shortly. It's called Before You Buy That Building, uh, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Property. Uh, and so that's going to be coming out here shortly. So if you guys want a copy of that book as well, uh, feel free to let me know. I'm going to go ahead and include a uh, sign-up sheet at, at the bottom of this description uh, for uh, if you want to get a free digital copy of the book. Uh, and again, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right into this episode. Yeah, welcome, everybody, for another edition of Toolkit Tuesday. We're glad you're here today. Um, so um, if it's your first time, welcome. If it's your 100th time, join us. Uh, glad to see you back. A couple of little housekeeping things we need to discuss. Um, if you hover, take your cursor and hover down towards the bottom of your screen, your toolbar will, talk up, will pop up and you'll see the chat feature there. If, um, as we go through our session today, if you have any questions or comments for our presenter, uh, just put them in the chat and um, you know, we'll get to them you know, maybe in the middle or towards the end. So if you wouldn't mind, just to make sure that you can hear us and you can see us well, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just put your name uh, in the chat and say hello and tell us where you're joining from. It's always kind of cool to see uh, where we get people join from. We've had people from all over the world in the country. So I really enjoy uh, saying hello to folks from everywhere. So if you wouldn't mind, just say hello. Hey, Nicole and Ashley. Uh, Ashley from Louisville. Uh, let's see. Yep, got a lot of Louisville folks today. New Orleans, all right. Welcome, Louisiana. Excellent. Um, yeah, so we're getting a bunch of folks in. Lexington, how, hey, Melinda, good to see you. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, again, I'm Dave Etkin. I'm the director here of the Louisville Small Business Development Center. We're one of 13 centers um, across the state of Kentucky. And the SBDC is, um, is a national program. There's SBDCs in every state. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm glad to see everybody here today. If you haven't, again, just to reiterate questions, put them in the chat. Just hover over the bottom of your chat. Uh, chat feature will pop up and put it in there. So uh, we have a great guest today, my good friend, Rafael Colazzo. He is a commercial real, real estate uh, broker uh, here in Louisville, Kentucky. And you know, we work with tons of uh, entrepreneurs and business owners. And one of the big topics that we work with and get questions from um, business owners is, is about how, how do I buy uh, a piece of property to add to my business or maybe I'm renting space and I like to purchase the build, building I am. And I think that there's no better way to create wealth and, and build generational wealth is than owning real estate. And uh, so uh, Rafael was nice enough to uh, agree to come back and talk to us about how as a business owner, you can jump in and, and look at some options to uh, buy the space that you're in, or maybe just look for some other uh, real estate options for your business. So Rafael, thanks for joining us today. Oh, definitely. Uh, thanks again for hosting me, David. Uh, loved the fact we were able to do this related to leasing several weeks ago, and I'm just glad to be back with you all today to learn a little bit more about the, uh, the purchasing of, the, of commercial real estate. So, Yeah. Um, so that being said, I'm just going to hand it over to you if you want to share your screen. We'll sure. Turn... I'm, I'm working yeah. on trying to get the, let's see, my presentation. Mm -hmm. all right. Can you all see that? Coming up. There we go. Looking good. Okay. Perfect. All right. So first off, thank you all so much for hosting me today. I'm excited to be with you all to talk about a topic that I think, like David said, is extremely important and it's pertaining to uh, purchasing owner-occupied commercial real estate as a business owner. So to start off, I just want to give you a background at who I am. Uh, so I'm a former engineer. Uh, studied engineering in college and got into the software space. I was a software consultant for about five years before jumping into the brokerage space. And since 2019, when I started in the commercial real estate space, uh, you know, I've been operating uh, 
helping business owners and investors buy, sell, and lease commercial property in the retail side, office, multifamily, industrial uh, sectors of commercial real estate. I'm also the author of, author of set, set, six books, uh, four of which were personal and professional development books. And the most recent two books that I've written are on the subject of commercial real estate. The first one called Before You Sign That Lease, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Leasing Commercial Space. And the most recent book, which I will be releasing here shortly, is called Before You Buy That Building, The Small Business Owner's Guide to Buying Commercial Real Estate, which kind of highlights the topic of how do you buy commercial real estate as a business owner. So uh, you know, th that's just some context on who I am. I know, oh, sorry. I know David had asked uh, where you all are, are tuning in from. I'd love to also hear maybe what you guys do as far as your business is concerned and how long you've been in business, which helps provide context to the, the presentation that I'll be giving. So I'll give, you know, let's say 30 to 60 seconds, maybe to share that in the chat box. I think that'd be awesome. I see a few gentlemen's cut. That's awesome. Uh, let's see. Skips defense solutions. Okay, so we got we got several uh, people tuning in from all over, and it looks like an, I can see a few of the businesses that you guys do as well. So, perfect. All right. Well, um, I will go ahead and and move on, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more. Uh, the print company. You own a gym. Uh, Gentleman's Cut got several locations. Uh, five years in firearms, mostly defense contracting. That's awesome. Awesome. Great. Awesome. So it's good to, good to hear some context from people who are watching the presentation so that I can make sure that the presentation is tailored towards what you guys are currently doing as well. So, so to start off, you know, I like to, before I start working with someone, I typically like to sit down with them to get a feel for uh, whether purchasing commercial property is, is right for them. Obviously, David had mentioned, I believe ownership of, of real estate in particular is a great generational wealth building tool, but it may not be something that is, that is perfect for every single type of business. But that's why I like to sit down with uh, them to go over the pros and cons of ownership of commercial real estate. So as far as the pros is concerned, I think the number one pro that a lot of business owners talk about is the control piece. So in a situation where you're leasing commercial property, you typically sign a three to five year lease, you may have some options on the back end so that you can control the property for that period of time. But after your lease is term term is up or the the option extensions are, are, are terminated you know the, the the landlord has the control of the property so they can choose to either jack up the rents or you know break up the space in half and lease that space to someone else or just kick you out entirely and so that control piece is a, a big reason why a lot of people like to own property because now they kind of control their own destiny number two is as david mentioned it's it's equity buildup so Typically, when you buy a commercial piece of commercial property, you'll you'll take out a loan to you know subsidize whatever you're going to be uh, as far as the purchase price is concerned. So you may you know come to the table with two hundred thousand dollars if it's a million dollar building, and then the bank will loan you the remainder. Well, over the course of your ownership, you will be paying down interest on the loan, but also part of that applies to principal. And so over a period of time, you will start to own more of the real estate. Uh, through just the the natural process of just paying down the, the note. Along with that, there's appreciation. So as long as there's population growth in an area and, you know, there there is, you know, economic drivers that, that support it, you know, you could experience some appreciation as well. And, you know, two to 3% appreciation year over year over a period of time can add up to significant returns if you, in fact, hold on to the real estate for a period of time. So those are the big pros as to why owning commercial real estate is of value. Uh, there, are, there are, all, are also some cons that, it, that it need to be taken into consideration from business owners to make sure that is, in fact, right for them. The biggest one is the initial investment. Uh, so if you're looking to see commercial financing, a lot of times you're looking anywhere between 20 to, or 10 to maybe 30% down payment. So if you're talking about a million dollar note, you, can, you, you need to come to the table with anywhere between 100 to sometimes 300 or $350,000. I mean, that's a big chunk of change. And depending on what type of business you own, it may or may not be something you want to do. Uh, along with that, there's ongoing expenses. And a lot of uh, business owners may be in, in situations where they're triple net leases, where they're having to incur a lot of the ongoing expenses themselves. But in a situation where you're only responsible for paying for electric and water and just basic you know, internet or whatever else, you know, by owning the piece of real estate, now if the roof has damage, you got to fix it. If the furnace is out, that's your responsibility. 
you know, so that, that's, that's something that needs to be considered prior to pulling the trigger on purchasing a commercial property. Because if you don't factor that in to your analysis, when you do purchase it, you're, you're going to be, it's going to be kind of a rude awakening, uh, you know, once you take ownership and these things start to occur. And then finally is lack of flexibility. This may or may not be a con depending on what type of business you operate in. Some people get to a certain uh, size and that's, that's kind of the size that they operate at for the duration of their business ownership. But if you're, you know, in a business where you're rapidly expanding, you know, maybe a 10,000 square foot space is perfect for you when you buy the building outright or you buy the building to start, but then maybe five years later when your staff has doubled, the 10,000 square foot space no longer works, in which case, you know, you have to either A, you know, sell the building and then use that fu those funds to buy another building or, you know, maybe move out of that building, buy another building, and then you can consider maybe leasing up that space. But there's just, again, additional things you need to consider if you are, in fact, you know, going to be expanding significantly and that that space no longer becomes valid for your use. And so those are some of the things that you should consider prior to purchasing a commercial property. Now, what we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to talk a little bit about building your team. So anytime you're starting any type of process, I like to sit down and think, okay, who do I need to get involved in the process to make sure that I can reach my, my goals and, and, my, the, and reach the finish line uh, without any, any, any bruises or scuffs? So really, as part of the team that you need to build, I think one of the first people you need to reach out to is a, is a commercial real estate agent. And a lot of times I get, you know, com I have conversations with people who are like, well, you know, you're a commercial agent, so it's not really you know, your opinion is not necessarily as, as uh, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're just biased with what you say this, but in, in reality, I truly believe that involving someone who is uh, an expert on the market and understands the dynamics, which in, in the market that you operate in is very important because if you, if someone does this on a day-to-day -day basis, they're going to be able to help you understand what's out there, you know, what's some of the, the, the terms and, 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 and other things that are involved with the, the purchase process that you need to consider and they're gonna be able to get you where you need to go. Uh, so first off, I would definitely look at commercial agents, especially those that are, that are working with buyers primarily. Uh, commercial agents tend to spe specialize in you know, tenant rep or they specialize in the sales side of real estate. So really working with someone who has a lot of experience representing buyers on the acquisition of real estate is very helpful. Along with that, involving a commercial attorney, um, for the for at minimum being able to review purchase contracts and other legal documents that may require uh, a lawyer to be able to review, uh, but also in a situation where you know God forbid something happens and litigation needs needs to occur, I mean having someone that you can lean on in that situation is also a val val value. So you know typically what I would recommend you do is once you do get involved with a commercial real estate agent, ask for recommendations of commercial real estate attorneys and also commercial lenders. Uh, this is something that, you know, is a little bit different than residential uh, real estate because, you know, the, in, in residential real estate, if you're going to be purchasing a home for your, 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 just to live there, you know, the financing is, is pretty cookie cutter. But in situations of commercial lending, it, it is very, very different. Different commercial lenders have different appetites for different types of businesses. And so, you know, that's why I encourage my clients all the time to talk to a variety of different commercial lenders to get a feel for what's out there as far as terms are concerned. And then obviously David and, and his group does a phenomenal job with the Small Business Development Center. And I'm sure they could put you in contact with a lot of commercial lenders that you know, are able to help you along the path as well. So as far as lending options is concerned, you know, once, once I sit down with a client and then I go through the process of explaining to them what the steps are, I typically put them in contact with a variety of different lenders to try to get a feel for what they can qualify for. Um, this will kind of help the commercial real estate agent be able to narrow down the, the, the scope of properties to ones that fit in line with what your, your budget is. And so to start out, as far as lending options are concerned, there's two types of you know, financing that we will cover. You know, there's a variety of different ways to finance commercial real estate, but the most common uh, is probably traditional financing and SBA financing. As far as traditional financing is concerned, I'm not a banker, so I want to make sure that you understand that you know, these, these obviously are metrics that I'm just seeing in the marketplace as a commercial agent. But if you really want to get a feel for what exactly is out there, I would encourage you to talk to a commercial lender about this. But as far as things that I've seen in my uh, career thus far, you know, anywhere between 15 to 30% down payment is pretty typical in traditional financing. Along with that, uh, five to 10 year terms, uh, what terms means is how long the interest rate is fixed for. 
you know, unlike residential real estate where or reg- residential financing where, you know, you could have a 30 rate, 30 year fixed rate mortgage. A lot of times with commercial real estate, you're looking at five to 10 years fixed, and then it'll either float, meaning that the interest rate will just start to, to fluctuate based on whatever index that the, the bank is following, plus a margin for the bank to, to, to provide as far as profits concerned, or a balloon payment occurs where, you know, the, 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 the note fully comes due, and that's just a force of refinance of the building. So those are typically what happens in those scenarios. As far as interest rates is concerned, I mean, it's, it's, it's fluctuating based on, you know, market dynamics. You, know, you probably have heard in the news that the Fed has been, you know, trying to press interest rates up to kind of control inflation. So interest rates today are much different than they were just six months ago. As far as a range is concerned, you're probably looking at between five and 7%. Uh, and that could very well change come July when the Fed meets again. And then in September, uh, they're, they're going to reevaluate as well. So, you know, you can't hold me to that, but that's kind of what we're seeing right now in the marketplace. And then also different lending costs. You know, you have origination fees, you may have point buybacks and stuff like that. And so what I typically tell my clients is that when you do start approaching lenders, ask them for some form of either fee sheet or or to give you an explanation of what other fees are involved with bringing or or being able to qualify for the loan. And so those are just some highlights that you can consider as far as traditional financing is concerned. As you look for SBA financing, you know, there's two tip, there's two main products that the SBA offers. And, and just to give you some context on the SBA, the SBA itself does not issue the loans. They'll, they actually um, guarantee a portion of the loans so from, from these lending institutions, thus making it a lot less risky for lenders to loan out to small businesses. And that's the whole function of a small business administration is to help support small business. So the two products that they primarily offer are the 7A loan. Uh, the 7A loan you can, you can utilize for uh, you know, a variety of different expenses, including working capital, equipment, real estate, construction, acquisitions of businesses, refinancing, et cetera. Um, and then the 504 is, you know, primarily focused for uh, building acquisition and, you know, construction and support of, of, of really the real property. So you're looking at existing buildings or land, new facilities, uh, long-term equipment, modernization of streets and parking lots, landscaping, et cetera. So those are the two products typically offered by the SBA. Um, as far as the pros and cons of SBA lending, again, you know, David is the expert and a lot of other people on this call may also be experts as well. So, you know, don't quote me on all this as well. But, you know, these are some of the things that I hear my clients say about why they decide to go with an SBA lend- loan or not. So to start off, the, the, the primary pros are uh, they do s- offer lower down payments. In particular, with the 504, you can get as low as, I believe, 10% down. Um, so that's actually a big deal for a lot of business owners, because if you take, let's say, a million-dollar building that you want to purchase, a 10% down payment is $100,000 versus a traditional lender, which may require 20 to 25% down, which is two hundred to $250,000. That's a big uh, savings as far as coming to the table with less money. Along with that, you know, I know the 504 loan has an upper limit or the, the, the amortization period can be as long as 25 years, uh, as opposed to a lot of other traditional lenders. Usually it's in the 15 to 20 percent, uh, 20 year range as far as amortization is concerned. And what amortization means is that it's how long is the loan spread over. So the longer you spread the payments over, the lower the mortgage payment ultimately ends up being. So it just helps with, you know, reducing that mortgage payment. Uh, even though the purchase price may be the same in both scenarios. And then finally, number three is funding other expenses. You know, I, as we mentioned with the 7A, you could have uh, financing for working capital. If you have a partner that you know, you're working with that you want to buy them out, that's also something you can utilize as far as the 7A is concerned. So there's other ways for you to finance uh, non-real property that can actually be of value to you if you are in fact looking to do so. Um, as far as the cons are concerned, you know, the big one that people talk about is the SBA fee, especially what it is, is that's a fee charged by the SBA to keep the programs going. Uh, from my understanding, it's anywhere between two to 4% of the loan amount. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's part of the, the part of the pros as well, which are, are the lower down payment amortization per, uh, uh, period. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a balance. Along with that, the slower process, uh, you know, and this is why I always recommend people work with uh, SBA preferred lenders, because if you're not an SBA preferred lender and you go, go to seek SBA financing, 
the the bank has to perform their underwriting, um, and then they have to send all the the documents and applications and everything to the SBA, and then they have to perform their own independent financing as well. If you're an SBA preferred lender, the 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 lender themselves can perform the the underwriting and the, the SBA can sign off on it. So it helps kind of shrink that timeline a little bit. But in a situation where, you know, you're not dealing with an SBA preferred lender, you know, it could take, you know, instead of 60 days, which is maybe the traditional timeline to close, it may take you 90, 120, if not more, depending on, you know, what delays are, occur. And then finally, number three, which is something that, you know, is probably going to also be something you have to deal with on the traditional side, or traditional financing side, I should say, is, is the personal guarantee. So most of the time, they're going to require you to personally guarantee the notes. So if for some reason, you know, you, the financing, you know, if you if you, for, if you have to foreclose for some reason because you're not able to, you know, perform on on the note, they can come after your personal assets. So those are some of the uh, pros and cons of SBA lending. So. Now that we've gone over, so first off, I just want to make sure if we pause right there, I know that was a lot of information. Uh, I know, feel free to type away in the chat box if you had any other questions pertaining to that. Again, I'm not an expert on on financing or both traditional or SBA, but again, this is just more of my, you know, experience thus far in my career, um, just just working with lenders and, and clients on a day-to-day basis, so. All right, so as far as the, the um Next step to the process concern. So once you've had an idea, talk to a few lenders and they give you an idea of what you could potentially qualify for, that's when you know I start defining the criteria with my clients. And typically what four characteristics I look for are, you know, what's your budget, size, location, and timeline. So we're gonna go through each briefly just so you guys can get a feel for what I mean. So as far as excuse me, as far as budget is concerned, obviously the upper limit purchase price is the main factor, but as far as the the two variables that affect business owners the most is their initial cash outflow, which is the down payment, and then their monthly mortgage payment amount, because that's something that's going to be recurring as far as an outflow is concerned. So those two items are something that you're going to want to work with your lender on to get uh, comfortable with. So, you know, you want to make sure that the down payment amount is a comfortable amount for you. And then also that the monthly mortgage payment is something you can live with on a day-to-day basis. And just because you can qualify for a million dollars, for example, as a, as a purchase price, maybe it's maybe you don't have to necessarily buy a building that's worth a million dollars, maybe buying a building that's $800,000 where you come to the table with 80 grand and now your mortgage payment is let's say $3,000 a month is more comfortable for you. That's probably where you should operate. And so that's why it's important to kind of work hand in hand with your lender to get a feel for what, you know, those numbers are going to be on a day-to-day basis. Number two is the size, you know, so you know, whatever, you know, whatever business you're in, you know, if you're a grocery store, you may require more square footage than, you know, an office user that has four employees. So really getting a feel for what exactly you need as far as space requirements is concerned is important. Along with that, any unique characteristics of the space. For example, if you're a logistics company that requires to, you, you get, you get semi trucks that come to your facility on a day-to-day basis, you're probably gonna need dock, dock doors. If you have, you know, uh, vehicles that you want to store on site, Maybe driving bays are important. If you're a restaurant, you're going to be, want to be close to, you know, the, you know, uh, visible roadways, high traffic counts, you know, easy access to the facility, et cetera. So those are some of the considerations that you need to look for. As far as location is concerned, obviously, you know, that's going to be very dependent on your use. You know, if you are a, if you operate in the industrial space on the logistics end, you may being close to your primary vendors is probably a value to you. You may want to be close to major roadways or, you know, if you if you ship a lot of product via the air, then maybe being close to the airport, you know, being close to railways. And, and you know, if you if you ship a lot of product on barges, you may want to be close to the river. Again, these are just conversations you want to have with your commercial agent to get a feel for what exactly your goals are. Uh, and then again, demographics are quite important as well. You know, you wouldn't want to necessarily put a luxury good store in an area where the demographics are more medium to low income. Just you wouldn't be able to, to make the, the amount of money that you would need to in order to support your, your, your business function. So again, a lot of this just comes down to sitting down with your agent and looking at the data. A lot of commercial agents have access to things like site to do business where they can pull you know, demographic data, they can pull traffic count data, they can pull a variety of different you know, metrics that could help make uh, your decision a lot more easy. Um, and then finally, as far as timelines concerned, this is something I always have to kind of set expectations with my clients on because I've had many people that contact me 
when their lease is about to expire. So it's like, okay, well, my lease is up in a month and I need to find a space and I need to be in it by the end of next month. It's like, okay, the, 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 the timeline to purchase a commercial property is going to take you probably at minimum 45 days, but more realistically, more like 60 to potentially 90 days. Um, and that's once you get under contract, that doesn't include the process and time to be able to find the property and make sure that it's actually fits your use. And so what I often encourage people to do is, you know, it's at least six months before your lease is expired, this is when you should start thinking about options out there and start reaching out to people uh, about your, and then sharing your intent to potentially want to purchase a property. And so, you know, that's something that I often have to, you know, set expectations for on the front end. All right. So in, in a situation where you've defined your criteria and you start going through the process of identifying property, at some point you will find a property that you find to be in line with what you want. And again, there's no such thing as a perfect property, but there, obviously there are situations where you're able to find a property that fits, that checks the majority of your boxes and you want to start moving forward with making an offer on that property. So to start out, what, 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 what I typically do is I try to get a mark, uh, perform a market and property analysis on the subject property. So essentially what you would do is you would look at the, the, the comparables or how, how, how many properties have sold in the area that are similar to this one, and then get a feel for what the price per square foot of the, of the subject property is. And so, you know, agents can go back about a year, maybe more depending on how remote the area is. And then they'll pull these comps and try to give you a feel for what a range would be as far as price per square foot is concerned based on, you know, the size of the property, the condition, you know, the location, et cetera. So once you have that, that, that data to reference, then you determine what appropriate offer, offer price is and you make the offer. As far as the contingencies within an offer, this is what I usually advocate clients do is that they have contingencies, which are financing. So you wanna be able to make sure that, you know, if, if you go under contract and you cannot secure the proper financing, you can back out of the contract without forfeiting your earnest money deposit, which is a, 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 an amount that you usually put up in an escrow account to, it's a good faith deposit. So you say, okay, I'm, I'm moving forward in good faith, but if I can't meet these contingencies or these contingencies are not satisfied, then I get that good faith deposit back. Uh, and I don't have to worry about, you know, losing that money uh, to the seller. So there's a financing contingency, which allows you to back out of the contract if you cannot secure the, the appropriate financing, uh, having an inspection contingency. So that allows you to go into the building, inspect it and make sure that it's actually functional for what you're trying to do. And if there's any issues that occur, you know, with maybe the roof or HVAC or whatever else, you have the opportunity to potentially either A, you know, request repairs or back out of the contract. And then number three, this, which is extremely important in particular when you're talking about industrial properties or, you know, uh, properties where there used to be uses there that could present an environmental concern is an environmental assessment. And a lot of lenders will actually require you to do at least a phase one environmental assessment, but having that contingency in place is also extremely important. And there's other types of contingencies that you may want to consider putting in there, but those are the three main ones that I often encourage my clients to, to pursue. And then finally, once you submit the offer and you, you, you provide whatever contingencies you have within the contract, there's usually going to be a back and forth. You know, sometimes the, 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 the seller is going to say, yeah, I accept your, your terms as is, but there usually is going to be a back and forth. And this is where the being willing to compromise is very important. Um, you know, I've had a lot of scenarios where I've worked with clients that, that dig their, their heels in the ground. They say, I'm not going to negotiate one, one bit. And then oftentimes the deal falls apart and then both parties are upset with one another. Uh, you know, what I usually try to do as far as setting expectations with my clients is concerned is I try to showcase what the opportunity cost of not closing on a property is. Cause oftentimes people don't consider that, you know, I've worked with clients in the past that we've, we've made offers on properties and then, you know, it just didn't go through. And then they, they didn't find a building for over a year. Like, what is that issue? I mean, what, what, what issue could that present to your business if you don't secure that space for an entire year? And maybe it doesn't present a, a significant amount of issues, but there are scenarios whereby that may present a lot of issues. And so considering that as you're going through the process of making offers is also very important to, to do because 
I feel like a lot of people do not do that. And it kind of bites them at the end. So, so once you, uh, decide to make an offer and it's accepted and, and you're, you're moving forward, you will have a contingency timeline, you know, anywhere. Oftentimes I set it, try to set it between 30 to 60 days, um, to satisfy all the contingencies that you specified within the contract. And this oftentimes represents uh, due diligence. So what, what I usually recommend as we go through the process of performing due diligence is you get a, a commercial property inspector to come on site or you hire each, each uh, you know, a tradesperson that specializes in each of the components of the property to perform their inspections. So that means maybe come, having a commercial roofer come by to look at the roof, maybe have an HVAC tech come by and check out the furnaces and everything else. Uh, maybe have, you know, uh, you know, electrician, if, if the panel looks like it's off or anything like that, have electrician come by and look to see that you have the, the proper, you know, capacity for, you know, whatever your use is going to be. So those types of individuals come by to be able to make sure that it's actually going to be functional for your use. Along with that, I encourage people to review bills and other documents that may be pertinent to the transaction. You want to make sure you understand what your monthly electric bill is going to be, if maybe a water uh, and water use, especially if the, the property was used for a similar use in the past, um, that could give you a pretty good idea of what your ongoing um, uh, expenses are going to be on that front. Next up is the environmental assessment. As I mentioned, a lot of times the bank will order that themselves, but you know, again, this is something that, that needs to be considered because if you go through the initial environmental assessment and uh, potential issues could have, could have arisen, now you have to go to what's known as a phase two, which could get very, very expensive, in which case that becomes typically a negotiation item between the buyer and the seller. And if, it's, if, 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 if it showcases that there may be significant environmental damage or issues, then that also gives you the right to be able to back out if need be. And then finally, what I typically recommend is getting a survey. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients say that they don't want to get a survey because they don't want to have to pay the additional, whatever, 800 bucks or a grand, whatever it costs to get a survey. And then, you know, issues may arise down the road. You know, I, luckily I haven't had any clients that haven't had any issues, but several agents in our office have had situations where they performed a survey and they realized that there was either an encroachment, like, you know, there was either a fence that, that went on their property line, which needed to be remedied. Or in one case, one of our agents was representing someone who was buying a, um, a parcel of land that ended up, that they thought was like 50 acres or something like that. And when they performed the survey, they realized that the actual parcel was 35 acres. So imagine that's 15 acres difference on what they thought they were purchasing, in which case they took the survey to the seller and they were able to negotiate a, uh, a lower purchase price as a result, but they would never have known that had they not performed the survey. So, I mean, this is something that I tell my clients all the time is it's worth getting a survey, even if you have to pay an additional expense, just because just for the peace of mind of knowing what you actually own. All right. So once you go through the process, and again, I want to make it clear as well, I'm, I, I'm not an attorney, so I want to make sure that you don't take any of this as, as, as legal advice. I wanted to also specify that at the beginning. All right. So finally, once you go through the due diligence process and, you know, you provide all the financial documentation to the lender and they approve your loan and you go through the process of, you know, trying to get to the closing table, here are some pre-closing items that you need to consider, you know, prior to getting to the actual closing table. First off is permits and licensing. I mean, as many of you guys who are actually, you've been in business for quite some time, uh, you know, you already understand what licensing and permits you need. This is something that, you know, you can go to the city and a lot of times they'll be able to tell you exactly what you need. But again, this is a checkbox that needs to be checked before closing. Uh, there may be some property or business insurance that you need to secure. You know, oftentimes, you know, obviously property insurance, you know, depending on what your lease is, it may have not been under your name, but now you'd have to get your own independent, you know, property insurance um, uh, account. And then also your business insurance would transfer over to the new property as well. Uh, and then finally, as you receive the closing statement from the lender several days before, you want to carefully review each item to make sure that everything is being calculated correctly. I can't tell you how many times I've reviewed closing statements and there have been errors, whether that's, you know, they didn't do the prorations right as far as taxes were concerned uh, or they, 
you know, they, they added a fee that, that shouldn't have been there, or they allocated a fee that should have been attributable to the seller, to the buyer. Again, these types of things happen pretty regularly. So you just want to make sure that you carefully review your closing statement so that you're, that everything is actually where it needs to be. And then finally, I always recommend doing a final walkthrough of the property, you know, especially if you submitted a repair request or something along those lines, you want to make sure that anything that that number one, the, the, the property is in good, is as good, if not better condition than when you performed your inspection uh, before you take possession of the property, because it's going to be a lot harder for you to uh, seek, seek remedy after you close. It's better to get it done ahead of time to make sure that things are as they should be prior to you closing on the property. All right. So now, I mean, this is obviously a, a, a summary of everything. And once you get to the closing table, you sign on the dotted line you have finally now purchased your commercial property and it is time to celebrate. And hopefully this gives you the opportunity to continue with your business and continue to grow. And, and like David said early on, build that generational wealth that everyone is seeking. So, all right, that was a quick, uh, quick presentation. I hope, uh, you know, you gained some value from it. Uh, David, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, not to add, but we do have a couple questions. Um, sure. So, um, Peyton asks, um, like in your transactions, are you seeing um, seeing any fifty percent or fifteen percent down payments as opposed to the twenty to thirty percent? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it depends on the lender, and that's why I encourage people to talk to as many lenders as possible. Uh, and and also, it, it not only does it depend on the lender, it also depends on you know the financial standing of the borrower as well. So. You know, again, there's a lot of variables, but, you know, I, I have seen 15% in the past. I've also seen, you know, certain loan programs for different types of professions. I know there's physician loans out there that can go as low as no, no down payment whatsoever, which is pretty surprising to me, but that is, is something that's out there. Um, so again, talk to as many lenders as you can. There's a lot locally. I, and I would even encourage you to talk more so to, you know, small banks like regional banks or local banks as a lot of them do have programs that may be, you know, more attractive to, to small business owners. Yeah, that um, going, going back to the SBA, the SBA has that 504 loan program, which is a 10% mm -hmm. down payment, but um, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. So your seller has to be a bit patient with you. So I would, uh, I would look into that. It's always mm -hmm. An yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, I, I was referencing more so on the traditional financing side, but you're 100% right on the 504 side. It's, yeah. You can get as low as 10%. Yeah. Um, I guess I should say this because we'll, I'll get the question, but on the 504, you cannot use that for investment real estate. Um, whatever you buy has to be owned or occupied 51% from an operating business, not a passive business. So, uh, a couple of things to keep in mind on that. Absolutely. Um, Ashley asks, um, what, what, I know you kind of answered this a little bit, maybe you can speak a little bit more to it, but um, the lending process, how long does it take uh, normally? That's, what do you think? That's, a, that's a great question. I mean, the underwriting side is usually pretty quick. The, the things that are holding up, uh, you know, financing right now is the, is the appraisal. And, you know, the big, the big problem is that there's, for some reason, there's just not as many commercial appraisals, appraisers out there at least here in Louisville. And so, you know, what usually, you know, would take the bank two to three weeks to underwrite, it may take them, you know, six weeks total to get you the final determination because the appraisals are taking five, six weeks. So, you know, the, the, the bank can do everything they can on the front end to vet you as a, as a, as a, as a potential lender, a borrower. And then also the one, they have the purchase contract in place to to see what the purchase price amount would be, but they won't issue the funds until the appraisal comes back and they're able to determine that it is, is in fact, you know, a value. So that's the thing that's holding a lot of lenders up right now. So, you know, five to six weeks is what a lot of lenders are telling me, but maybe that changes in the future, but that's kind of where, you know, that where I'm getting. So really 45 days is probably a good, you know, contingency timeline for financing. And that's kind of what, what I always recommend. Um, so here's a, here's a, here's my question. Um, so what are you seeing as far as demand for certain properties? Like, I mean, is there, um, 
is there like a short supply of industrial or in a big supply of retail? I mean, that's just, I'm just throwing it out there, but what, what would you, what would you say to that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, yes, industrial, you know, still there, it's kind of like the darling property right now, uh, especially interestingly enough, you know, that the, the over 10,000 square feet, you know, is, is just really hard to come by. I mean, if you're looking in the, in the, you know, 10 to 25,000 square foot range. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's hard to find. It's very, very difficult to find. Uh, mm. You'll start seeing a little bit of inventory and not a whole lot, but a little bit of inventory above that amount up to maybe a hundred thousand or 150,000 square feet. And then after that, it starts, there's not as much uh, available. And I think, you know, I guess it's, you know, the, the low, smaller businesses typically operate within that you know, five, five, 10 to 25,000 square foot range. And then obviously the larger corporate entities operate in the, you know, ups over 200,000 square foot range. So sometimes you'll see a little bit more inventory in that, you know, you know, 50 to 150 square foot range, but or 150,000 square foot range, as far as retail is concerned, you know, it really just depends on the type of retail where it's located. I will say this, that restaurants are, are really hard to come by, especially second generation restaurants. You know, I have several clients that I'm looking for on the lease side and obviously on the purchase side that, that, that it's, it seems to be the same way. It's just building out a restaurant is so expensive that a lot of people are just electing to go with, you know, a second generation concept, meaning that it's already built out as a restaurant. It was used as a restaurant in the past and they just would rather either a lease it or potentially buy it themselves just because they don't want to have to deal with the hundreds of thousands of dollars they'd have to spend with a, on a build out. So, right. um, you know, that's kind of the. What I'm seeing on my end, um, office is is pretty surprisingly actually performing pretty well, especially on the east end. If you're if you're talking, you know, a thousand square foot to two thousand square feet, like the condos, office condos are are, you know, they're they're selling really really quickly. But um, which is somewhat counterintuitive when you consider COVID. But it seems like a lot of people are th are seeing are figuring, hey, I don't want to be at home anymore, or maybe they just want to have a separate location they can go to to operate out of then you know that seems to be what's happening right now yeah yeah um <clears throat> Tayton asks where do you find an agency to find the best use for a property um is there a company that goes out and performs this service uh best mm -hmm. use for a property um yeah. i mean not not necessarily i mean you could just ask you know a lot of you know if commercial agents can give you an idea of what, you know, people are looking for. And, you know, depending on what the zoning of the property is, depending on its configuration, depending on how much you're willing to invest in the property, you know, you may be able to, you know, change it up, change it a little, change it around to maybe attract a particular user. You know, I think really what, what, you know, highest and best use you should look for is what is it currently zoned for? So what type of tenants can you potentially attract? And then number two is what are those potential tenants looking for? And then what are the market rates for those particular uses? And then based on what the market rates is, you can potentially see, okay, am I willing to invest whatever it's going to cost to get it in a condition that is going to attract those types of users? So, you know, it, it's a multivariate analysis that requires just data to be put in front of you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I would, I would imagine that, you know, most an experienced commercial agent would be able to kind of tell you, Hey, this is what we're seeing in the marketplace. And mm -hmm. that'll at least give you some context. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've actually had, uh, had that done. I've been not, I guess it was semi unintentional, but uh, you know, when you're going through a process, maybe you can talk a little bit about this too, Raphael, but like there's a process called a, a broker's opinion of value. It's not yeah. so much of a, of a appraisal, but you know, that's your broker's giving you an, a, just a, what he thinks. And, and he may say that he may say, well, yeah, it's a, it's a retail place here and now, but you, if you turn it into multifamily, it'd be worth 10 times more, you know? So mm -hmm. that does probably be a good, uh, good use of that. Absolutely. Um, do you do that kind of service too, Raphael? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I do that pretty regularly. I've had people just contact me and I'm, I'm happy to do it. You know, I, even if it doesn't necessarily even turn into anything for me, it's, it, it's more of just trying to educate the populace. And that's, that's my goal is to try to just become an expert, uh, the, the go-to expert for people. So, you know, if someone has any questions in particular about, 
you know, what, you know, maybe the highest and best use for a space could be and what it could potentially go for. I mean, that's something that I, I do pretty regularly. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Chris asks, uh, Raphael, what, what is your typical role in this whole process for, for a buyer? For a buyer? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the quarterback. So really what, what comes down to is, you know, I would start working with a buyer um, and, and kind of explain the process ahead. And then from there, I would put them in contact with the appropriate parties and make sure that all the check boxes are checked to be able to get us to the finish line. Um, so, you know, I, I'm in communication with the lender. I'm communication with, you know, the inspector. I'm in communication with, you know, the appropriate tradespeople, depending on whether or not we're utilizing them for the inspection. Um, and yeah, just anything that needs to be done to make sure that you get to the finish line, that's kind of my role uh, in the transaction. And, you know, with the, on the buyer side, you know, since the transaction, the, the, the commissions for the, 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 the transaction are actually paid uh, by the listing broker. So it's, it's a free, free for, for buyers. Um, they, they, don't, they don't pay for the services. So. Um, Ralph asks, would using the property for a dwelling as well as a business address be allowed or frowned upon? Um, well, that's, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a context that I'm, I'm working on one deal I'm working on right now for a, a business owner client, they're going to try to operate their business on the bottom floor and they'll occupy 51% of the space. And then upstairs, they're going to try to do some Airbnbs. Um, and we were working with a lender in town that is, that said, essentially, as long as you occupy 51% of the space, they can, you know, provide this particular loan program to my clients. Again, you would probably be able to educate, you know, them more on the, the SBA side, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if it, I, I would, I would imagine it would be hard for you to maybe seek, you know, residential financing, but for on the commercial end, it, it may be different. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, back, I don't know, 70, 80 years ago, that was the norm, I think. You know, people mm -hmm. live above their business, uh, especially if they're a small business owner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still somewhat prevalent in, in, in larger cities. You know, I mean, you may own a convenience store and you, you live in the apartment in the back or, you know. Right. So, you know, it's not, not uncommon. Yeah. That uh, here in Louisville, that um, Hauk store on Goss Avenue, were you familiar with mm -hmm. that, Rafael? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. The Hauks all lived in the back of the back of that little grocery store for generations. Yeah, that was really That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ashley asks, any projections on the supply and demand given uh, recent changes in the economy and surge in people leaving the workforce, interest rates, that sort of thing? What's what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think it all just depends, right? I mean, it, I wish I wish I could, you know, just say yes or no definitively, but <laughs> you know, you would think you would think that, you know, and this is actually I actually have a YouTube channel where I talk about a variety of different topics, and uh, one being right now, which which I'm tracking carefully, is you know the Fed is 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 kind of in a delicate balancing act where they're trying to raise interest rates to stem inflation because you know the consumer price index, if you've been tracking it over the last year. I mean, we've been, you know, in the seven, eight percent range as far as year-over-year uh, -year increases on in, in inflation. So obviously, that's not sustainable long-term. And so the the solution for that, or one of the levers that the, the Fed can pull, is to try to push or pressure banks to raise interest rates by modifying their their target rate for the federal funds rate. But the issue is that we also have supply constraints in a variety of different. Uh, you know, for, for different raw materials, one being oil. I know we, we're not able to refine as much as we need to domestically, and that's causing issues as far as pricing for oil is concerned. And since oil is an input on all these different products, I mean, you start, you, you, you may run into a situation where the Fed, you know, pulls a lever to try to raise interest rates, the economies begin to, the economy begins to cool, and then prices continue to increase regardless. So you're, you're in a, you know, a, a, a GDP is dropping while inflation is increasing, creating a stagflationary environment. So obviously that is not a good situation. And obviously that's what the Fed is trying to control. As far as the, you know, supply and demand is concerned for real estate, I think what it really comes down to is how do people respond now that the, the, the economy is starting to slow? I know there's a lot of people that are hesitant about what the stock market is doing. And so real estate tends to be somewhat of an inflation hedge. It's a pretty decent inflation hedge. And so I'm, I'm, I'm 
foreseeing that, you know, you'll probably see a lot more money coming into the real estate uh, side of things. However, because interest rates are higher, you know, the, the cost of capital is higher. So, you know, what does that mean for return metrics? So it's, it's one of those things where theoretically, if you raise interest rates, you should see a price drop off and, you know, demand begin to slow. Thus, you know, supply becomes supply increases and pricing drops. But, you know, in a scenario where more money's flooding in because, you know, the stock market is not, is too volatile, then how does that affect the, the equation? So it's not a, it's not a simple solution, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yep. There's no crystal balls. Yeah. But, but it's, it, it will be, I mean, it will, you will know more as, as time progresses. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, what we do, right. You just, you just look at the market <laughs> and see how it all works. See that's it all right. plays out. Yeah. Uh, looks like that's all the questions we have. So Raphael, this has been great. You're a great speaker. And um, I think that um, folks out there will be reaching out to you here real soon. If uh, everybody's kind of interested in buying some real estate for the business. So yeah, Raphael, yeah. And, and, and I'll, and I'll even share. So I know I mentioned that, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm writing, I finished a book. So if you guys want the, a free, you know, uh, digital copy of the book, you know, you can, you can access it here. Um, you know, obviously make available to you guys, if you'd like. Um, it's just, again, it's just this presentation, but a lot more elaborate. Um, it's about 150 pages. So hopefully you gain some value from it. I don't know where you found the time to do all that, but it's pretty impressive. Thanks. No, I appreciate it. I, I just, you know, I, I follow this guideline of the, the, the compound effect by Darren Hardy. It's this book that I read a while ago that kind of put me on, you know, all these different things. And it's, you know, small, consistent, positive action on every day add up to massive results. So, you know, I get to a point now where I'm writing 250 to 500 words a day. And so if you do the math, you know, 200 page book is 50,000 words. It takes you about a hundred days to write a 200 page book. So that's kind of my, <laughs> my logic. Easy enough. Sounds mm -hmm. easy, but probably not. So yeah, well, Raphael, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, thank everybody for joining us today. And, um, We'll uh, reach out to Raphael. There's his uh, contact info. We'll send you the slides later on and yeah. uh, you'll have this contact information. You'll have the bit.ly um, link there. You can click on that and, and, uh, and take advantage of that. So, um, so thanks again, Raphael. We'll have Definitely you back know. again. I know we will. <laughs> I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Have a good Tuesday, everybody. We'll see you soon.